All right. Well, welcome to the Leaning Edge podcast. It's our honor to be here with you again. You know, there are two questions that are just really probing on our mind. And me and Ryan, we were just, we felt a little bit stumped to answer these questions for you today. So we called in some help. I just had a little casual friend. A little casual <laughs> friend to help us out here. So in just a moment, we have two important questions about when clients are reactive, but then when you get them open, what do you do? And so we said, let's ask Sue Johnson what you would do in these moments. Get ready to listen. Welcome to the Leading Edge in Emotionally Focused Therapy with your hosts, Dr. James Hawkins and Dr. Ryan Reyna. EFT is a dynamic model that humbles even the most seasoned therapists. Together, we want to come alongside you as you continually push the leading edge of your understanding and application of this wonderful model developed by Dr. Sue Johnson. And so... Talking about this wonderful model developed by Dr. Sue Johnson, we have Sue Johnson here with us today to help talk about when clients are in chaos, what do you do? And then when they do, you get a few sessions down the road and they're a little bit more open. What are your go-to moves? What do you want to say here, Ryan? Well, I just want to say welcome to Dr. Sue Johnson. Great friend, such an incredible impact on the world. And so we want to say thank you for being with us and thank you for all you've done for so many years. And, uh, we're so happy you're with us. I know it's been not the easiest of years for many, many reasons. And so it means even more that you're joining us today. Hey, guys, it's lovely to be here. Thank you. And I love your enthusiasm for the model. And I love that you're, you're helping folks learn it and push the edges because no matter how much we learn, there's always more to discover. And that's, that's why it's fun to be a therapist because – Every client I get, I still learn from. So, so hey, we can learn together. I'm really happy to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Yes, yeah, Sue, and thank you for creating that culture. Just what you said, always pushing the edges. We wouldn't be sitting here today and many people learning EFT if you didn't keep pushing the edges the way you have in this field. So thank you. Absolutely. You're most welcome. And you know what? The problem that we had was we had so many wonderful questions we could ask, <laughs> but then that would take like 10 hours. So what we decided to do... <laughs> Would uh, would be just to stay with some of our um, intention with this podcast of just trying to be super practical, you know, tactical in terms of just putting our, ourselves in the shoes of our listeners who sit in, who do the incredible job of sitting with hurting relationships all day long, yeah. your local community. So we have this chance to have one of, if not the greatest couples therapist in history with us. So we just want to ask some practical questions. Question one, Sue Johnson, <laughs> you walk in a room with this highly distressed relationship. They're hurt, they're wounded, they're reactive, they're volatile. What are some of your first thoughts that come to mind? How do you keep focus? What are your go-to? Because, you know, you can't think about 50 things at once. Uh, right. At some level, you got to have one or two that you go to. And I wonder if we could just sort of steal some of your thoughts here. So what, what would, how would you say to that, Sue? Okay. Well, I'll riff on this and you guys can come in and, you know, ask me more specific questions or add your contribution. We can play. Okay. Um, I think the first thing is <clears throat> when you see a volatile couple, the first thing is, it's like there's there's kind of a wind swirling all around you 
The first thing is to be able to keep your own balance. Mm. So in, in other words, not to go into, oh, my goodness, this couple are going to be really hard and I'm not going to be able to work with them. <laughs> okay, so to catch that and say, it's okay, and breathe and sit down and trust yourself and the model that you have a map. And that's really what EFT is all about, that you can walk through chaos. Um, you can walk through darkness and chaos and with people because you have a map and you know where you're going. And that allows the EFT therapist to be present mm. in a way that um, if you're uh, if you're an, an eclectic therapist where you're, you're using lots of things but you're not quite sure you know, what one fits for you, or if you're trying to do a number of things, I think that's more difficult. Um, it grounds you to have a map. So first of all, you have to take a deep breath and say, okay, you know, these guys are in chaos. Okay. And then, in a way, it's the most basic um, move in EFT, and it comes from Rogers, and it comes from Bowlby, who both were able to do this. It's very, it's really a shame they never met. They would have loved each other. Um, I mean, Bowlby, when he, in his first book, which is in, wrote in 1944, about all the delinquents all around London sleeping in doorways, when the theory was that they were bad and you just put them in jail, right? Mm. And I can't remember the quote. It's unfortunate because it's a beautiful quote. Okay, it basically says... Uh, where you see anger and rage, you look for the pain. Where you see shutdown and resistance, you look for the fear. Ooh. In other words, you, you, you look at the dance they're doing and you know that there is vulnerability and that the dance is all about protecting themselves from that vulnerability and that, and, and at times the other person is going to look like the enemy. And so that's how they react. So you see, if you like, through their um, anger or their, you know, years ago I had a, a man, um, Doug. We actually made a training tape of him. I don't know if it's still around. It is. But he was a, a rather unpleasant fellow. You know, he he sort of marched in and started pronouncing, you know, that the problem was that his wife was fat. And so um, she didn't turn him on, on anymore. And his wife was this small little depressed lady who sat and wept. And after about three minutes, I just wanted to sit up and pop him, you know, I, to say that I didn't have empathy. <laughs> and I, I know that's happening to me because um, the voice in my head is um, – oh, I don't know, a 15-year-old working-class English girl, and that English girl says, now look. Okay, and I say, no, 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 don't go there. You're not there anymore. You're much older, and you're supposed to be educated, and you're doing EFT. So um, instead of that, what I try to do is get curious and find the vulnerability. And that was hard for me because... He just kept doing what he knew. Mm. And, and the other issue is if you're an attachment-orientated person, you see that as protest. 
which is the same way as seeing you see the vulnerability underneath. You see the protest. So I had to get past, though, that he was, you know, um, well, you know, I'm a feminist and, you know, to sit in front of a female therapist and start screaming about how, and by the way, she was, by the way, the other issue, she wasn't fat, she was about my size. <laughs> so, you know, um, after about five minutes, you know, I thought, I'm, I found myself labeling him. You know, oh, this guy, you know, this guy's this, this guy's this. And then you have to sort of realize you're doing it and stop. And I think um, the model helps me do that, my experience. Um, you know, Rogers said, you know, you've got to look past the pain, look past the fear and the pain and listen on a different level. And um, so, you know, I start to do that. And I think what helps me is curiosity. I, I, can, what it, go on. I'm yeah. sorry, Sue. I was, I was, uh, I just had such a nostalgic moment. Mm. I was going to jump in with you here uh, without, well, I don't want to take up much time, but no, go uh, on. Yeah. yeah, well, I was a little slow coming out of grad school and, and learning to appreciate EFT. And so it's such a small world because the training video that really got me hooked on EFT was with Doug. It oh, was, are it, you kidding? No, it was Doug and Diane. And uh, I, I really didn't understand EFT well. My teachers did didn't really understand it either. So it was me. It was me watching your compassion and grace with this person who was clearly doing things that no one liked, probably even himself. Yes. And, and you and were able to find the real person behind that. Yes, and the amazing thing is that my experience is nearly always. Um, but when you find the real person, the compassion is natural. What I started to hear when he started to talk and I started to ask questions was, this is a massively insecure, traumatized man who lived with a, a psychopathic, violent father who ran, literally ran, the small northern Canada village that he, that he lived in who was um, violent, just, you know, randomly violent. And um, that this lady was this man's lifeline. And she was the only person that he had ever started to trust. And that gave her a power, which, of course, she didn't feel. She felt um, completely, you know, um, victimized. and But that gave her a power. And when you started to talk about fat, what was that about? Um, what emerged was this man never felt sick. Never, never, never. He was highly, highly anxious. Um, he'd been treated all his life for, he had about five diagnoses. He'd been treated with drugs, with certain CBT stuff. And, you know, I guess some of it had happened, happened helped a little bit, but um, what he was doing in front of me was driving the only resource that he had in his life that was really mm. working for him away from him. Right. And that's his protection became a, was becoming a prison. So, you mm. know, I saw him doing this and then he starts to talk about what fat means. And he starts to talk about how all the women in his family, all of them, all his relatives were very, very obese. Okay. So that his fear, his fear, was that his wife would become obese and then he would lose his arousal 
And the only time he ever, ever, ever felt safe on this planet was when he was actually making love to his wife and she was responding like she liked him. Right? And that is, then when you understand that, you understand that he is in panic and you start to see the panic, not the the aggression. So, um, and then we start to create a relationship so I can contain his aggression. Mm-hmm. You know, I can reflect it. I can say, mm-hmm, you know, could you help me? Right now you get caught again in, you know, this thing, this fear about your wife is going to get fat. I don't say, stop saying your wife's fat, you know, that, and, and, so I talk, and then he starts to talk about his vulnerability, and um, you know it's and with her, you know I start talking about how, of course, she just sees his, um, what did she used to call it? I can't remember exactly now, but it, it's a word that conveys pressure. You know, she says, you know, um, if he wants to be with me or come close to me physically or start being sexy or make love to me, if I don't immediately re- respond, he basically goes crazy and he and I say, mm-hmm. And then I start talking about how she constantly gets the message that um, she's not sexy enough, she's not mm. this enough, she feels pressured, she feels overwhelmed. And then she withdraws and shuts him out. So the next thing we do is we start putting their their distress in the con- they, we put their distress in the context of their vulnerability, their attachment insecurity. I start to create a relationship. I start to tune in and find a way to connect with them. And then we start talking about the context, which is their cycle. You know, they, they're both caught in this dreadful dance. And I think for therapists to really get this, um, what I try to do when I train, especially in the last few years, is I try to ask therapists to see it in their own lives. Okay, when you get that you can be caught in these, I, the example I give is um, one that doesn't make me feel terribly good as an EFT therapist. Um, when my wonderful son was about 17, we were in like a, some sort of bad scene. Okay, we were. We were stuck. We, I knew we were stuck, but I couldn't. We were stuck for about a year in this horrible pattern where I would, from my point of view, try to talk to him and he would completely contemptuously dismiss me. And then I'd get angry and we'd be stuck. Okay. So I decided to try and talk to him, which is very stupid of me. We went for coffee and I'm in Starbucks on a Saturday morning, about six blocks from my house. And people know who I am, quite a few of them. So, like an idiot, I try to start this conversation with my son. <laughs> <laughs> I try so carefully, so carefully. I say, well, you know, maybe we should have a little chat about the fact um, that, unfortunately, it seems to me, I don't know if you feel this way, but I think you're failing grade 12. <laughs> and so that's how it comes out. And my son... Um, as only he can do, um, looks at me with contempt in his eyes and rolls his eyes back and like, oh, my God, here we go again. And I lose it. Mm. Okay. <laughs> in Starbucks on Saturday morning, 
waiting for my coffee, I lose it. Okay, I start to say lots of stupid stuff like, what the hell is that look supposed to mean? And you never listen. And, you know, and I start to blame him and put him down. And the only thing that stops me is the barista who turns and says, would you like cinnamon? On the top? <laughs> <laughs> and then we both stop and I say, um, no, thank you. Then we go back and sit down. Now, the issue is I want you to get that I am caught and my prefrontal cortex and all my EFT training is for a moment irrelevant because I'm a human being. I'm caught. And it is not me that gets us out of that. My sweet son looks across at me at 17 and says, well, mum, that conversation didn't go too well, did it? Uh. <laughs> and then that grounds me. And then... I start from a different place, which is what you're trying to get your couples to do. I start from, no, Tim, it didn't because I started in the wrong place. Mm. What I should have said is, I'm getting really, really scared because go. I know that you're in trouble. I, I, I'm desperate to help you and I'm really scared and you won't let me in so I can't help you. So then I feel like I'm a really bad parent. And he goes... Oh, right. Mm. And then there's a long silence. And then he says, oh, well, then he comes and joins me. Mm. Well, mom, you're right. I'm in terrible trouble and I'm in more trouble than you can ever imagine. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> and then he starts to tell me about his trouble. And we get up and we walk out and we walk the, what is it? I can't remember, five blocks to my house. And we were talking just the other day, actually. It's all these years later. And we actually brought this up, this, this conversation, and we both decided that it was a complete turning point because we were getting really stuck in me being the advice-giving, unfortunately blaming parent and him being the withdrawn, resistant kid. And um, this turned everything around. By the time we got to the house, we were back to the bond that we had years before. And the fascinating thing is that we'd solved the problem, which I'd been trying to deal with for 18 months, to two years, mm -hmm. because he'd said, yes, I'm in trouble. I made a suggestion. He heard me and he said, yeah, okay, I'll go and, um, I'll go and enroll in the school down the road in a couple of weeks and I'll go back and do grade 12 again. And then he went on to be very successful in school and in graduate programs. But that conversation shifted our relationship. What I want people to get is if you're a human being, you get stuck in this because you have very strong emotions. And when you feel vulnerable and helpless and unsure mm. and you feel unworthy, like I was telling myself, you know, I've got all this training and I'm still a bad parent. Uh, because I can't somehow save my son, mm. or you feel rejected or abandoned. My son felt rejected because all he heard was, you're bad, you're bad, you're bad, you're failing, you're failing, which is how he felt anyway. When you feel those things, um, you lose your balance. Mm. And the issue is to know this process and to be able to see it, and to know you lose your balance, and that's just human, 
and to be able to come back and ground yourself again. So I encourage therapists to see that and to see it in their own lives. And of course, the more important the relationship is to you, the more loaded it is with existential significance, with attachment significance, the more you are your limbic system, your nervous system is going to respond to messages at times with alarm. You know, I've been married to my husband for 33 years. We have an amazing relationship. It still amazes me. But, you know, there's a certain tone of voice he can use. <laughs> you know, I, I think I'm a pretty feisty lady, but there's a certain tone of voice. I can never capture it. But when he uses it, he, call, he calls me a name that no one ever calls me. He calls me Susan Maureen, Ooh. which is my middle name. <laughs> so if, if John turns and in this tone of voice says, Susan Maureen, okay, uh -oh. I assure you, my nervous system goes, ah, you know, like, ah, you know, like, um, I've blown it, I've blown it, oh, my God, oh, we're going to have a big, f oh, you know, and, and, but we know enough now that we can, if we get stuck, we can turn and say, hey, we're stuck, you know, hey, what's, <laughs> so you, you look at the dance, and the other thing about Doug that I think is important is you recognize trauma. You recognize the imprint of especially attachment traumas. And you understand that they echo forward. Mm. And um, that someone, you know, when they come to see you, um, is vibrate. Some clients are just vibrating with this, their nervous system has been put on high many years ago and their ability to trust and feel safe is damaged. So you have to then be patient. You have to, you know, you can't um, get empathic a couple of times and reflect the cycle a couple of times and expect them to just respond. Um, seriously distressed couples aren't going to be able to do that. You have to, you know, uh, and I talk about talking to the amygdala, singing to the amygdala. Well, if an amygdala is in high alarm, you have to, um, you have to like be prepared to sing it, sing to it softly uh, a number, a number of times. So Doug stopped calling his wife fat by about the, oh, I don't know, the end of the second session. But, you know, um, he still used to get real pushy and real controlling and real, you know, they had a fight once about the fact that she bought a cushion for the couch and he went into a rage and took it back and told her that she was spending too much money. He couldn't make decisions, this guy. Mm. None of the car salesmen in the city would talk to him because he'd, he'd um, burn them all by walking in and deciding to try and buy a new car. And then at the last minute, he'd put, throw the pen down and run out. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God! And she was enraged with him because they were—they had this terrible wreck of an old car that kept breaking down. So you know, um, you have to be patient, and that's true in EFIT in individual EFT as well. The the client that I talk a lot about in the our latest book, the EFT Primer, um, which um, has a 2022 label on it, but it actually came out in the fall. That client 
who was highly, highly traumatized, um, just as an individual without the the cycle that continually creates this this vulnerability that you have in a in a distressed couple. You know, I just have to wait for her. Um, it. I'm a pretty impatient therapist, actually, and I have to. Um, put blocks on myself at times. And I waited for 10 sessions, which for me is uh, an age, okay, for her to slow down, um, stop changing the subject every two seconds, looking blank at me whenever I summarized and tried to make sense of what she said. There was no coherence to her life story. There was no, she was like, looking at a jumpy, a jumpy, freaked out little animal in my office. And, you know, you couldn't say much to her more than, oh, I hear how hard that was for you. She'd react all over the place. And I struggled to even make coherent sense of um, her. Give you an example. She'd make a revelation. Like she said, there's a scene, there's a scene, and I can't talk about it there's a scene and it matters and I'll, I can draw it, but I can't talk about it. And so we, we said, okay, it's too hard for you to talk about. That's you just stay with the resistance. Okay. Just stay. You validate the resistance. Mm-hmm. You don't march in and try to dismantle it. They're mm-hmm. trying to protect themselves. You say, I see, I see that you need to protect yourself here. You, you stay and, and you, I say, there's something here that's very hard. And she'd say, yes. And then I try to reflect what she said the few minutes before. Well, she said, I'll show you a picture. So she came in the next session, I think it was about session five, and she showed me this picture. And it was of a church, but there was nobody in it. And I knew that she was talking about the people in it and that some drama had unfolded there, right? And I said, oh, there's uh, just a church here. There's nobody in the picture. And she says, really? really? And she grabs the picture and looks at it. That's how chaotic she was, okay? It took, I can't remember when it was, but it was, you know, sessions later where she was able to say that coherently, that was the day when my mother and my sister and I went to church and we found the service had been cancelled. So we went back home. And when we went back home, we walked in on my father raping my infant sister. Uh. And then, and guess it, and it's worse. And what I remember is that my mother saw it with me and she turned around and was silent and walked out. Right? And that was the memory. But it took her a long time to even be able to tell me that. And so you have to tune in and you have to go alongside people and you have to respect their window of tolerance. You have to have patience sometimes and you have to um, work hard at trying to put their story together, trying to understand it. And that can be quite frustrating. Mm. You know, it can be, you know, um, my curiosity always keeps me involved, but, you know, it's not easy sometimes. You know, um, couples, they give you different images of the same event, 
and you have to work hard to to validate both of them and put it together. In an individual, a traumatized individual, you're just walking into a brain and a nervous system that doesn't want to put this stuff together, can't bear it. And so you have to respect people's window of tolerance. The amazing thing is that that lady did the most amazing work. Um, And her scores on the TSI, what is that thing called? The Trauma Symptom Inventory by Briere, B-R-I-E-R-E, which is so much better than any other measure of trauma that it's ridiculous. Her scores went from unbelievable, over-the-top, on almost everything, um, you know, just just unbelievable scores to 40 sessions later to um, everything being normal except that the the dissociation scale was a little bit higher than normal, which is amazing, you know. And the other thing she said to me that I think is significant here, you know, clients do teach you. And after about session, I don't know, five or six, she said to me, you're different. Mm. I said, okay. She said, you're different than the other therapists. I said, oh, well, um, um, could you help me? What, what's different? Um, she said, you're not scared of my pain, are you? Mm. And I asked myself, you know, because this lady, you know, it was becoming very clear that this lady, I couldn't figure out how she'd survived. Okay, I just couldn't figure out how she survived at all, right? I couldn't figure out how she wasn't in a mental institution or or hadn't gone crazy or hadn't committed suicide. And indeed, she had been hospitalized for catatonia, going completely catatonic a number of times. But um, she's in front of me and she's talking and she's trying to relate to me. And so I thought about it. Am I scared of her pain? And I said, um, no, I'm not. Mm. Um, because I, I think I can understand it with your help. And um, I think I have a map. I think I have a way through it. And she said, okay. <laughs> but, you know, so that's the other thing. Um, sometimes, you know, with people's pain and vulnerability scare us. And I think you have to have a map. You, I rely on the model. I say, it's okay. <clears throat> it's okay. You know, we've done this before. Look at all the couples and individuals I've seen on tape in our studies. I've supervised. I've watched. I've done lives with. I've had clients. I've written about. It's okay. We know this stuff. We know this territory. It's okay. It's always about um, rejection and abandonment. It's always about us wanting to feel connected. And connection for some of us is a is a, a double-edged sword. It's what we long for we can't do without. And it's what terrifies us and, and um, creates our vulnerability. So um, is it okay if I jump in with you? Yeah, I don't know if I'm answering your question. You're doing great. No, you're doing so well. I just want to bring the listeners along. Um, Incredibly rich right there. You know, something that James and I have said on this podcast a lot is we as therapists need corrective experience as well. 
Yeah, that's yeah. that's how you learn to trust the map is you see it work, and, yes. and then you trust it. But I want to I want to reflect four or five things mm-hmm. that you said that were so amazing. Can I do that really fast? <laughs> my favorite thing you said so far is sometimes we just all lose it. You know, you just get yeah. caught up in it and, and we're humans too. And that, that's okay. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we can have repair uh, the same way our clients can. In fact, I think that's very human of us and that, but it also at the same time, it is really crucial. Just, I have your words written down here that we have our own balance, that we don't panic, mm-hmm. that we breathe. We trust ourselves in the model and that allows us to be present in a different way to where we can see the unseen, which is vulnerability that's there but not shown. Mm-hmm. Right. And that your curiosity, I wrote down, it keeps me involved. That's a lovely thought. You know, and then we have to learn to see protest as forms of protection. And again, it's so funny that you bring up Doug and Diane. That was such a formative uh, training video for me. I can remember distinctly. Just what a bind it is to see someone be that mean. <laughs> yeah. And and uh, what what I saw you doing there, which I it's really a trained thing at this point. So so much of this is is natural, but some of it's training as well. Is you just repetitively reflected, mm-hmm. tying together his pain with his protection moves. Yes. And you were really with him. You didn't have to say quit saying that she's fat. He, he goes, oh, it's not really about her weight. Oh, this is about my pain. And then, right. the, and then the thing that really sold me on EFT, Sue, is at one point, Doug says he's in one of his trauma memories, and he talks about his father hitting him and knocking him clear across the, the yard. And 30 seconds before that, Diane was looking at him, with such incredible contempt. <laughs> I'm sitting there watching yes. you and there's no way this woman loves this guy until you brought forward a different vision of this person and instantly she converted into a nurturer with him and I was sold on EFT. So I just think that's a great thing to have this conversation with you directly. And I want to jump yes. in to catch here Sue is, you know, she could come up with some complex thing and I, sometimes I see EFTers like when they get into these moments, like, give me something new, give me something. Now, you know, and Sue, the first thing she goes to is ground yourself and, and grounding yes. herself, pull and ground yourself and pull back up your attachment lens. And all you kept showing me there was, Sue, was one of the things you love. You kept assembling their experience. Assemble, assemble. So if, please listen, ground yourself and keep trusting. If you keep assembling and ordering their inner world and it gets clearer to you, it gets clearer to them. You are literally working on their limbic system. That's what Sue's kind of helping us. Like get your limbic system in order to get their help catch their limbic system. And then it'll open up a path to be able to work. So I don't That's know. That's right. Trusting the basics there. But I think the other thing is, and I really think this is important because therapists talk a lot about burnout. You know, and I always ask myself, why didn't I ever burn out? Hmm. I burned out with doing research studies because I started to get so reactive to silly reviewers that I lose my cool all over the house. Okay. And, um, but I, but, um, I never burned out in therapy. Why not? There were times when I was seeing a lot of clients at the hospital in, in my own practice, um, you know, individuals and couples and sometimes families 
why didn't I get burned out? And I think for me, the thing about curiosity is core. I'll give you an example with um, the lady in the primer book, Kenny. I could not figure out how she survived, okay? I could not figure it out. And my map, Bulby said, you know, there's got to have been some experience of attachment somewhere. Well, I couldn't find one, okay? And so then I remembered another quote by Bulby, and he said, in a good relationship, you feel worthy and competent. So I was getting confused. And what we try to do is, especially in EFIT with trauma, we try to find a positive experience and we use it, we create safe haven and we, the, we bring it up as a lived image and the person can go back there when things get too difficult, right? We use it as a resource, as a safe cycle, right? I couldn't find one. And finally I said, was there ever a time in this dreadful childhood that you felt strong or you felt special? And first of all, she couldn't think. And then she said, oh, I was a, a fantastic gymnast. I said, you were? Tell me when you felt most strong and most competent in the gym. And she talked about uh, a competition where she was the best on the balance beam. And I said, help me. What did that feel like? And we went into it. And I went into it with her. And I said, so, and I, I did this much slower. Right? I did this, uh, and I did it again and again. It's like, oh, so your feet are on the balance beam. And you feel them and you feel strong and you know that you're going to leap into the air and you know that you'll find the balance beam again and you breathe and you leap in the air. You can fly. You turn your body and you find the balance beam again. You're strong. You're so good at this. And then you leap again and then you twirl and you land with your hands out on the floor. And she says, yes. I say, and you look up onto your coach's face, and what do you see? She says, I look and I see that I'm special, that I'm good at this, and I can fly. And I say, yes. And that was it. So the point is, it wasn't what I had in my head. It, was, it wasn't, oh, somebody turned and comforted you, because that's what I had in my head, okay? So, so forget what I've got in my head. This woman taught me. And we use that image in almost every session. Mm. I'd go back there again and again, and I'd use the metaphor, you can fly, you can fly. Mm. And she did. Mm. So she taught me. She taught me about resourcing and how sometimes you have to search for a lived moment when this person did feel strong, competent, special, where they got the message that they mattered, mm -hmm. that, um, you know, that they could do something. Mm -hmm. um, now, some people would say, oh, that's ridiculous. The coach wasn't really an attachment figure. No, but this was enough. It got her through to the age of 17 when she ran away from home. It got her, it somehow got her through. And it was still a huge part of her life, the gym thing. So, And I, I bet, Sue, and I might be wrong about this, if if she was just doing the balance beam in a in a gym all by herself, it wouldn't have been quite the same. 
But the fact that she was doing it in front of other people and her coach and they saw her as competent, it it changes her view of self. Is mine the ballpark there? Yes. Okay. And and what is interesting is she started gym at 11. And if you looked looked at her life story, um, she would tell me things that had my blood ran cold, okay? After 11, she started standing up to her father. Of all, and and I don't know how she did that, and I don't know why she didn't end up dead. Okay, um, but but she did. She found her, whatever you want to call it, resistance, rage, mm-hmm. sense of who she was. She found this, and she'd really come to me because now she was fifty years old, and things her life had started to go very badly wrong, and she started to lose that. And, you know, um, so it was important that we, in other words, you find people's vulnerability and you validate it and you go back there and you make sense of the ways they try to control and deal with that vulnerability. We're all human beings. We only have so many ways and we get stuck. But you also honor people's courage and their, their ability you know, one of the reasons I love working with trauma is these people blow my mind. Mm-hmm. You know, that they've survived at all. Mm-hmm. Never mind that they've been got five labels or, you know, you see beyond, in EFT you have to see beyond the labels, your own, your own expectations. You know, there was no one in Henny's life. I couldn't find anyone, not a grandmother, not a, oh, there was a coach, right? Okay. But it, he wasn't really key. What was key was her sense of power mm-hmm. on the balance beam and the fact that he witnessed it. And so, so this is a um, perfect segue, Sue. You, is, can I ask you a follow-up question? Because I got to kick this to James. But this is a perfect segue. Can I ask you one quick question? Yes, go. Okay, I'm feeling nostalgic today. You ready? So yeah. I was I was at my first externship. This is in New York. I'm quite certain you remember me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking. There was 200 of us in the crowd. But but I was on day two. Quick story. Day two, it's on a break. I come up to shake your hand. You were amazingly kind. And, and for some reason, you said, where are you from? And I said, I'm from Arkansas. Have you heard of that? And you said, no. And I'm like, okay. And and then, <laughs> and then you say, what do you do? And I said, well, I'm a teacher at a university, and I teach the systems models. And you did this funny thing. You instantly stopped the line of people and pulled me aside. And uh, my friends that were with me were like, whoa, you're talking to Sue Johnson? And you were saying, so Ryan, systems models, what do you think about EFT? And I'm like, well, obviously I like it since I'm here. And and then I said this, I said, but you know, one of the things that really sets apart EFT for me is is the paradigm that you use towards resistance. And Mm. you're doing a beautiful job of describing it right now. There's There's a fine line between resistance and resources right yes the way people resist is also what's good about them yes but it takes us being the stronger wiser other to see that because resistance also can feel like uh you know blocks all the time so i'm just going to ask you how did you develop the nuances of learning to see resistance as a place of resources learning to quoting you earlier to tune in to be patient to be resilient, you might say, and stay with the resistance uh, for a bit. Was there a way that came about, or is that just natural to you? Um, I think my clients taught me. I think I'm a pragmatist. 
And I think when I started seeing couples, I tried everything and nothing else worked. <laughs> okay. I think it's also part of my personality to see um, uh, that there's more than one reality or to see beyond reality at the, the surface because, and I've talked about this ad nauseam, so it must bore people, but I grew up in a pub. I had no, there were no kids around to play with. There were no peer groups. The peer group at school didn't want anything to do with me. I was the ultimate outsider. I was the wrong class. I spoke wrong. I dressed wrong. Even the teachers disliked me intensely. There was one teacher who actually told the other children not to play with me because I was a dirty lower class child. Mm. And, um, you know, so I didn't have any peers and I used to spend a lot of time just watching people in my father's pub. These are adults. But these are adults who are getting drunk and who are, um, you know, talking about uh, flirting and fighting. And, you know, um, Friday night there was always violence. And as a child I felt perfectly safe behind the bar. So, so you know, I think my reactivity, my window of tolerance was, <laughs> got pretty wide, you know, um, but I began to see that there was a surface and then there was something else. Mm. It was clear to me. I watched all these dramas, you know, and I watched a little man come in every night at the same time and say the exact same thing to my father. And my father to say the exact same thing back for, you know, 10 minutes. And I remember thinking, that's silly. <laughs> now, why do they say the same thing? And then I got, it wasn't about the words. It wasn't about the information. All right, what was it about then? Oh, it was about the fact this man lived alone. My mm. granny told me he lived alone. He'd lost his wife. He didn't, he came in because my dad was kind to him. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't what my dad said. It was his tone and voice. Then you start to listen to the music, mm. right? This man would go, hello, how are you? It's cold outside. Isn't it cold? He'd say nothing, right? And my father's voice would go, Nice to see you. Nice to see you, Ron. Yeah. Same as usual? Yeah. You want a pint of bitter? Yes. Yes, Ron. Oh, yes, Ron. Yeah, that, yeah, I, yeah, it's very cold. Listen to my father's mm -hmm. voice. Da-da-da, da-da-da. Ron came in for a dose of connection. No, I didn't say that to myself at five and six. And, but, you know, I, I, it wasn't hard for me to see what was behind stuff. And, you know, it used to get me in a lot of trouble, actually. You know, I, rem I, I, I mean, I would say things to teachers that you're not supposed to say. <laughs> <laughs> so I appreciate, you know. I appreciate you sharing that story with us. So what I'm hearing you say right there is, you know, the resistance of the culture around you and, and how you were treated, you turned into a resource. It, it helped you pay attention to interactions in a different way. Yes, it did. Even as a young girl. And I want to say, uh, at risk of sounding cheesy, you still have no peers, Sue, because uh, now you have surpassed uh, so oh, many yeah. people. Oh, no, on. I'm serious. And, here, and here's and No, but here's why. You combine hard science and years of research with a deep place of compassion. Mm -hmm. And that's something that's so, so missing in our field. And I just want you to know how much it means to us. So I'm going to... I want to say that to you before I turn it over to James here. Okay. Thank you, sweetie. That was very nice. Mm. 
So, Sue, I got to make the shift here in the way. Thank you for this orientation to seeing this reactivity and protection as a place of resource, which I hope our listeners, you really got to catch that. You've got to shift that in your body, that their reactivity is not an opposition to you. It's actually a place of resource. It's a place of fear. They're doing the only thing they know to keep the fear away. So right there, did you catch that line? You could say that right there to your client. Hey, you're doing the thing you know to keep the fear away. And the fear is because we love. That's right. Right. So it all ties beautifully together if we can see it. So we'll break that yeah. down. So you gave us a lot of nuggets in there to really break down for the listeners. But here we are. So now you've worked with this couple, Sue, um, this imaginary couple, if we're still with Doug and Diane. Uh, by the way, we need to put a link to that training video in this podcast because everyone's going to be like, I need to watch that to understand this. It's awfully old, James. And I, I think we might have cut it because okay. the- Tape wasn't very good, but, you know, well, it was a real session and it was taped on a terrible camera. But anyway, yeah. Well, it did something to Ryan, so thank you. I might have a hijack <laughs> copy somewhere, okay. but I can't tell you where. Okay. But so so you maybe that you're a couple sessions down the road now. This couple's not in reactivity. You've really de-escalated them. Now it's time where it's like, uh-oh, they're more open. Let's work on restructuring their bond. In that right. place... What are what it what goes through Sue's mind? What are Sue's go to place when a couple is open and you see that opening where you can begin to restructure their bond? Well, um, to be a bit facetious here, <laughs> what you do is you do the tango. Because what the tango is, is it's a synopsis of um all our experience over the years. And we used to have nine steps, and I always felt that they were a bit awkward and a bit sort of mechanical. And then a few years ago, I just said, no, no, just look at what the therapist does. And it became incredibly clear. So move one of the tango is, you, you know, there's a lot that isn't in the tango. You know, create an alliance, you're aware of all the things we've talked yeah. about, right? Mm-hmm. But you look at the context, you look at how this person deals with their vulnerability and how it actually gets them stuck and, and constantly recreates that vulnerability. Then when you have enough safety in the room, enough connection, you understand enough, you move into move two, which is you go into the emotion and you stay there. And again, you have to take your cue from your client. And some you, you, have, to, um, you have to tune into them physically leanne campbell who who wrote the the primer with me is a genius at this you have to go and you you go into their emotion but you watch for how much they can tolerate Mm. and you reflect you constantly reflect you when you reflect you hold somebody's reality in your hand in a way that they can tolerate that's what you do So, you know, you hold their experience in your hand. So you keep doing it. It grounds people. If you think about it as information, people say, oh, you know, you only have to reflect once or twice. No, 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 it's not about that. You're holding them. You're regulating their emotion. So you reflect and you go into the emotion as much as they'll allow you and you name their vulnerability with them and you help them feel that. They say, can you feel it in your body? What do you say to yourself when this happens? What do you want to do? People can tune, you know, people can tune in. Um, I'm giving a podcast for every man soon, and the mm-hmm. gentleman was asking me about men. Well, all right, there are differences in men and women and how we train them, but in the end, we're the same. We're the same animal. 
And this is true for men too. You know, men can tune in. Men can do this just as well as women, what I'm talking about. You just have to be with them, you know, and you tune in and you help them name the emotion. And then that emotion connects to key moments of drama, usually interactions, repeated patterns of interaction with attachment figures in their life where they decided what life was about, who they were, how safe other people were. They made these huge existential decisions mm-hmm. and which are still up and operating. And, um, you know, you, you go into those moments and then you go into move three, which is you take those movements, those moments. So, you know, why do I always two seconds after I've achieved something hear my mother's voice in my head saying, who the hell do you think you are? Don't you get, don't you get conceited? Don't you start to feel good about yourself? Why? Because she had a huge influence in my life and that's what she told me a thousand times. Right. Mm -hmm. So you go for move three and then somebody is, Hey, um, and Sue, while you do that, you know what? I'm going to take a pause. You take, you do what you got to do. And I want to play a commercial real quick in honor of ISAF. So hold on. Listen to a commercial just to talk about how we're proud of this organization that we're a part of. Hey, I want to put a quick plug in for ISEFT. You may or may not be familiar with that organization, but ISEFT is the International Center for Excellence and Emotionally Focused Therapy. It's kind of our parent organization, or the mothership, as we might say. This is Sue Johnson and her wonderful team of trainers, administrators, who have been working since the mid-80s to bring about, um, sustain, and advance everything EFT around the world. As we say at our trainings, if you're just on a first date with EFT or just sort of uh, somewhat involved, maybe not. But if you really love EFT or EFT is your home, you should consider joining ISEF as an organization. That's the organization that organizes our trainings. Uh, It's a great website, ISEF.com. Their research page alone is worth a visit. You can keep up with what's going on all around the world. If there's a core skills in New Zealand, It'll be on that website. So a great opportunity to hear about our specialty trainings, addiction, uh, infidelity, um, EFIT, working with individuals. So consider checking out ISEF.com and maybe joining uh, the International Center for Excellence in Emotionally Focused Therapy. All right, so, so coming back, so you, you've distilled their experience and now you've got it clear and you've gone into it. You've gone into the vulnerability and named the emotion and where it took you back to these key moments. And now we're yes. in move three of the tango with them. Yes. And what starts to happen is they start to see, they start to put their own experience together in a new way and their partner starts to see them in a new way. Mm. Um, if you're working in individually, they start to put their experience together in a new way and they start to understand what has happened to them and where they're stuck in a new way. Right. So, you know, um, so for, so, you know, people start to, you, you turn their inner experience into back into interactional pattern because that's where it came from. Mm. You know, so you say, um, and can you imagine saying that to your mom? Right. And the person says, no, that would have been terrible, you know, and I say, oh, well, what would have happened? 
Or, you know, what often happens with traumatized people is we we go for the vulnerability and what comes out this is this vulnerable part of them. We often call it the child part of them because it's so vulnerable. And then what we start to do is we we get the adult coping resourced self that is sitting in therapy with us to talk to that child, that vulnerable child, and reassure the child in a way that no parent did. You know, with Henny in Ifit, you know, the key session that seemed to change everything was um, when she was able to remember her, the worst memory of her life, which she completely dissociated. And um, she was able to remember it. And as an adult, she was able to feel it in her body, weep, weep, weep for it, and um, stay there with it, not break apart or go catatonic. Or And then she was able to access the strong adult part of her and go in and be with that, that completely devastated child and comfort that child, mm. which is why two sessions later I say, how are you doing, Henny? That was such a moving session. I was weeping with you. It was terrible. I don't know how you ever survived. How are you now? And she said, I'm fine, Sue, because now I have me. Mm. And that is interesting because she's talking about the growth and integration of self, which is why we call EFIT all about expansion of self. But that happens in couples therapy too. You know, when, when Diane starts to see how terrified Doug is of rejection and abandonment, you know, she starts to see his rage in a different way to the point where, you know, at the end of therapy, he has a, some sort of snit fit downtown Ottawa <laughs> and this small depressed lady who never said boo to anyone and has lived with this man for years, apparently turned around and said to him, oh, stop it. Mm. Just stop it. Just calm down and stop it. This is not okay. You know what's going on. And he did. So, you know, she, you know, she starts to, she finds her own assertiveness in, in seeing his vulnerability and she reflects a different, holds a different mirror for him. So relationships change, sense of self changes, sense of self changes, relationships change. They're part of the, they're the opposite sides of the same coin. And what we have done in psychotherapy is not understood the power of attachment figures, the power of attachment patterns, um, you know, and we have not understood this. We've not had this basic map mm. to how people are. So then we've made lots of crazy mistakes over the years mm. from, from my point of view, of course I'm biased, you know, but you know, um, we've been, we've been hampered by that, I think in the field of psychotherapy. So let me just catch some of the, the nuggets you've already given us here. I love uh, So when this couple has de-escalated enough, we want to begin restructuring the bond. We can even know we're ready when there's enough safety and connection in the room. And then once we know we have that on board, yes. the constant reflect, reflection of their reality and holding it out there in your hands in a way that they can experience it. Yes. Making it and so alive. And they can start to see past their cycle. They can start to say, we're stuck in this dance again. And they're a little kinder to each other. They can start to see each other's vulnerabilities. Mm -hmm. And then you can start to build a hold me tight conversation. That's right. Where somebody can talk about their fear, like I did with my son. I said, I'm scared, right? That was very different from, 
you, I don't think you're doing your assignments. You're not, you know, what are you doing in school? You're not talking to me, right? So, you know, they talk about their fears and they start to talk about their needs. Wow. You know, um, and that changes everything. And we know from nine research studies and from years of experience, here's the point about this. I don't know whether this just strikes me, but for me, this is gold, okay? Here's the point about this. We know the moments we can pinpoint, we can find them on videotape, we can code them, we can use those moments to predict what happens three years later. Mm. We know the moments of key significant change. We know the corrective emotion experiences that are necessary and sufficient to change a bond, and we know that when the bond changes, these people change, their depression and anxiety changes. We know. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we can create corrective emotional experiences with precision and intention. And from, from my point of view, mm-hmm. that's a huge breakthrough. It is. In psychotherapy, not just in EFT. We know. And now we're doing the same thing with emotionally focused individual therapy. Um, you know, this changes everything. This changes my confidence as a therapist completely. You know, I can't always get there perfectly. You know, I don't know how long it's going to take me. You know, a change event with Dick and, and Jane might not look the same as with Sam and John. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, we can't always tell that. But, but basically, we can look at a couple and tape them and say, there, there it is. See that? It happened at the end of that session and the therapist brought it up again and they continued it in that session. That's the place where everything started to shift onto a different level. That is gold. It is. And I think you named, you said two lines that really hit me to make it even more clear. When you said name their vulnerability, when we're talking about restructuring, naming their vulnerability explicitly and then seeing how they experience it and then follow the emotion. The emotion will take you back to these key experiences where they've had yeah. some rough spots with their vulnerability and where they're afraid. Yeah. And then I loved what you did with move three of the tango there. You turn that inner experience back into an interactional pattern. That's I don't know. That's right. so clear for me. I like that, Sue. That's right. And if you look at the simple thing that happened in Starbucks, I think it was very important that I didn't hold back. I didn't just say to my son, oh, I'm getting a bit scared that you're going to, they're going to fail school. Mm-hmm. That wouldn't have worked. Mm-hmm. I had to, I had to really do it. I had to say, I'm getting scared. That's right. And you shut me out and I don't know what to do and I feel helpless. And then I feel like a failure as a parent. Yeah. And that was the, the whole game. That was the whole thing, you know, and, and I did it and I offered an invitation by doing that. And he, he did the same. So we connected on a level of vulnerability that um, restructured your well, it's bond. It's wonderful, actually. I think we still have it. We can still fight like hell and then turn and say, oh, we're fighting like hell. Oh, my goodness. And then we can t- change level and say what's really going on with us. <laughs> so, you know, that is key. And that's what has a relationship last. You're going to get stuck. And what you do when you get stuck is what decides whether the relationship deepens and grows or whether it shrivels on the vine. It's not a mystery. It is not a mystery. Love is not a mystery anymore. 
Mm. And, and thank God for that because we all need it so much. But, you know, um, and I, mm. my goal is to do the same with EFIT. You know, the, the way people um, recover from trauma is not a mystery. Mm. I don't believe it. We just haven't worked hard at it. You know, we're figuring it out. You know, it's like um, our clients are teaching us just like they've taught us in, in couples therapy. And that is fascinating. Mm. You know, it's psychotherapy is fascinating. Okay. Uh, whatever. No, I, I love it, we, Sue. We were, I have a feeling I'm over time, guys. It's Sue, what... Sue, we're on Sue time. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but I hope, with, you know, there's so many things. There's always, of course, the clinical and technical information you're giving us, Sue. But, I, you know, everyone can't see you right now like we can see you. But I hope you can feel that, that excitement coming off of Sue. The passion, the veracity there that allows her. I think it really. It's amazing and inspiring. It very much is so. And, you know, and and I mean, so that's you know, no need to be afraid of the reactivity. And then when, and then the, what Sue is kind of showing us as we bridge these two together is that when we can appreciate that reactivity is showing us a place to go and work. And we have yeah. a map. We have an attachment lens and a map to go into that place of distress and do the work, right? We're not we're not trying to tell you you're a volunteer firefighter that never got trained on the equipment and go into a burning house. We're literally saying through these EFT trainings, through the primer, through uh, attachment theory and process, all these you know resources we're trying to create, this podcast and many other things that are out there in the ISEF world, we're, we want to train you to go into these, these hot places to be a skilled, informed helper with these places. And then not only just go and put the fire out, but now that you've gone in there and created enough safety and connection, go to those places, follow the emotion to these key moments when people learn not to trust again. Name the vulnerability, make it so explicit. And I liked how Sue said it, is reflect it, reflect it, reflect it, and make it come alive in the room and follow them there and then turn it into, this is what makes EFT different too, Ryan. We don't just do it, it's not insight oriented, it's turn it in back into an interactional pattern. And that's where the that's change right. event can drama. happen into a drama. Because we all have these dramas in our head and they guide us in our lives. Guys, I think I have to go, but okay. you know what? This has been such fun. And you, by the way, you're very good at reflecting. You must have learned that somewhere. <laughs> I don't know um, where. <laughs> um, I have to go, but you know what? This has been so much fun. I'm quite willing to come back some other time. We'd love well, to have you. Thank you so much. Thank so we so really much. appreciate your time. So Sue, thank you so much again for being with us. I know you got to go make an appointment. And uh, you have been so generous with your time. Uh, we're so thankful for you. It's going to take me a month or two to process through all those incredible nuggets. But um, so, so bye, Sue. Thank you for being here. Um, uh, go ahead and take off, of course. So uh, while she kind of um, takes care of, of moving away, James, let's take just a minute and kind of wrap up what we heard here. We, we heard some incredible principles of dealing with reactivity and then some more incredible principles of, of going deeper with less reactive people. And then she did this beautiful integration with, with working with individuals. What I took most from, from my side of the interview, and then I'll turn it to you, mm -hmm. was um, number one, be in balance yourself. Self to therapist is so key. We should do more episodes on that. Um, and at, but at the same time, self to therapist is a dynamic moving target. You know, no one's ever so secure that they don't lose control at times. And I, I really think she'd said that nicely. Yet it is important to breathe and to and to repair and to trust yourself in the model. 
and then really, really took in, you know, she was doing two cases at once there <laughs> and uh, about the importance of learning, you know, how you handle resistance, how you handle resistance. It's a big theme on this podcast and it's a big theme um, in this kind of work. And she just had incredible things to say about that. But my favorite is just stay close to it, stay close to it, you know, and, and don't just try to bypass it. Don't just try to eliminate it. But then also skillfully learning when to sort of stop it and shift directions. I thought she did a beautiful job sharing that. What did you take out of the, the deeper work there? Yeah, I really only got I, – I put it into three bullets for me, really. It's when when we get to that place where we want to restructure their bond is we've got to go back to the place of their vulnerability. And we've got to name it. Name it and make it come alive. And of course, one of Sue's favorite interventions is reflection. Keep reflecting that experience for them and their vulnerability. Name it out loud this scary place when you lose connection with your partner or when you or that rejection, that the possibility of ab- abandonment or rejection is alive, then examine their experience of it. When you even reflect and make that vulnerability come alive in the room, how do you experience it? What is it like seeing it now? What do you even notice your body doing now, putting it back into their body? And then third point is turn it back into an interactional position. Now this inner experience, this fear you've been carrying alone, could you turn and talk to your partner? You know, this is probably looking at, definitely if we're looking at like a stage two, you know, would you want to be here with me? And then even really getting it clear. And so use the term, you know, we kind of think of this in step seven, turn it into a hold me tight conversation. In that place of vulnerability, could you hold me? Could you be here with me? So. That's such an amazing point. You know, maybe we'll do a later episode on this, but that's my dissertation topic as well, that, that all trauma is relational. Even if it's like a single car accident, eventually yeah. someone pulls up an ambulance driver and eventually the system responds to you in your pain. And, and how that goes tells you as much about how you're going to recover from the trauma as actually what happened to you. And so, but even more so, trauma doesn't heal until it's put back in relationship. Mm. It just, you know, you can reprocess it all day long and that's really important. But until it's put back into relationship, the body doesn't metabolize that, you know, and Sue and the other researchers are showing that can be done some in the drama that that exists in your imagination, um, which can then spawn um, new ways of being with actual people. So just really, really rich content. Yeah. So you all were thankful for that you got to experience this and got to hear from one of the pioneers and founders of this model. And we look forward to, we're going to have Dr. Leanne Campbell on here, uh, Dr. Catherine DeBrun, and Dr. Lisa Palmer Olson. So really looking forward to bringing you some more people just to help push the leading edge of your learning and also not just your learning, but your clients' experiences as they heal in their vulnerability. Thank you. Thank you for listening. We hope this experience helps you push the leading edge in your work to help people connect with themselves and with each other. Please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a five-star review. You can contact us at pushtheleadingedge at gmail.com and you can follow us on our Facebook page at Push the Leading Edge. You can follow Ryan on Facebook at Ryan Rayner Professional Training and on his website, ryanreynatraining.com. You can follow James on Facebook and Instagram at DocHawkLPC. You can also check out his website, DocHawkLPC.com.